This podcast is brought to you by Schweitzer Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit any of the links in the description. And now, please enjoy the message. Well, welcome. My name is Spencer. I'm so glad that you're here. Today is part one. We're starting a brand new series um, as we begin Advent. We're going to be reading from John chapter one. Hopefully you have your Bibles with us um, as we celebrate the coming or the Advent of our Savior over the next four Sundays. Advent stretches the four Sundays before um, Christmas. And during this time frame in our church, we have a ton of ways to engage in, in different things happening in our church from special groups and classes to special services like Christmas Eve. One thing in particular I really want to make sure is on your radar and on your calendar is next Sunday, December 3rd um, at 6 p.m. in our student center. We'll have a special guest with us, um, Bishop Todd Hunter, who's a bishop in the Anglican Church of North America. And he'll be with us uh, giving a teaching on how the the Christian witness looks in our postmodern culture. So how do we share our faith um, in this age that we live in that's highly secular and um, individualistic and and the world has changed in so many ways? And so we're going to be talking about the, the Christian message and the Christian witness in this world that we live in that's so, so different. So if you care about evangelism, about how we share our faith, if you're interested in things like culture wars, Christian nationalism, these are some of the things we're gonna be talking about as we go through this. I'd highly encourage you to be with us. I think it'll be very thought-provoking and very challenging as we think through um, those questions together. That's next Sunday, December 3rd at 6 p.m. Today, we're getting this started, our new series for Advent. I'm calling this The Glory of God. We're going to be reading for the next four Sundays from John chapter 1 um, as we walk through this. Now, uh, John 1 is a little bit different than the other Gospels uh, in in so many different ways. So, you know, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, three of them tell a very similar story about Jesus. John tells a different kind of story. It's it's much deeper than the other ones. It's usually like you're swimming in the deep end as you go through um, the, the story of John. But the traditional Christmas story, you find this in Matthew and Luke. And this is the story with angels and shepherds. And you've got uh, the, the, the angels coming to, the, to announce the birth of Jesus and all of those kinds of things. Uh, John tells, though, a different kind of story, different kind of Christmas story. So Matthew and Luke, they go back to the beginning where it's the birth of Jesus. John, on the other hand, he's like, you know what? We can do better than that. And so we're going to go back not to the beginning, but to like to the very beginning. So John chapter 1, here's the Christmas story from John. We're going to be working our way through this chapter over the next four weeks, reading it line by line. Today, we're going to do the first five verses. Here's how it goes. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. One more time. In the beginning was the Word. Now, we're going to read several more verses today, but we got to we got to pause here before we read on because we just, oh my gosh, a lot just happened in those five words. So Matthew and Luke, they start their Christmas story with angels and shepherds and announcements and all of the kinds of things you expect. John's like, no, 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 we can do better than this. Let's go back to the very beginning of everything. Obviously, when you read this first phrase, in the beginning was the word, we're hearing these echoes and John is trying to make connections in our heads to Genesis chapter one. Genesis one, of course, opens like this, in the beginning, God. So John 1 starts off, in the beginning was the word. Genesis starts off, in the beginning, God. Now those first four words of Genesis, in the beginning, God, those are some of the most consequential words that have ever been written in in any time or place throughout history. Those are some of the most consequential words that have ever been written. Sometimes we miss just how consequential they are because when it comes to Genesis 1, a lot of times we come into this reading and we start to to come into this with, with questions of like, how did God 
create everything. And we come in with questions of science and how we navigate that. And, and a lot of times when we do that, we read right past these very consequential first four words here. Um, in the beginning, God. But these first four words of the Bible are so consequential that if you and what you think about them will set the direction of your entire life. What you think about these first four words of the Bible will set the direction of your entire life. So, so in the beginning, God. Okay, so what was in the beginning? Well, God. What was there before there was anything? Okay, well, there was, there was, there was God. Um, therefore, God has always been and God will always be. God is the ultimate reality. God is the ultimate truth. And, and if God is the ultimate truth, then that means that what God says is truth. So that means I have to conform my life to what God says about life and about the world, about himself, because God is truth. And, and I have to go by what he says because he is, is truth. I have to conform my life to him. So these first four words of the Bible are, 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 if they're true, then I have no choice but to submit my life to the Creator, to, to live under His authority, to live in obedience to Him because He is the Creator. So what I think about these first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God will set the direction of my entire life. And there's a tremendous amount that we could say about this. In fact, we're gonna do a whole series in January that is really about living according to God's truth, which is really what we're talking about here. So we're gonna save some of that for next year because there's just so much that we could unpack with that, with that understanding that God's truth is what, is what is true. We have to live according to that. So back to Genesis 1. Verse one, in the beginning, God goes on here and says, created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God created everything, including you and me. Everything. God is the creator. We are the creation. And that order is really important. God is the creator. We are the creation. And when we get that mixed up and we start to run life on our own terms, this is when we have a recipe for dysfunction. Verse 2 goes on. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. In other words, the earth was chaotic. It was disordered without form and without purpose. But, or rather, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So God is going to bring order and purpose and meaning and design to this world and to us that is so chaotic. Verse 3, and God said, and I hope you caught it right there, three verses in the Bible, we have the first mention of the Trinity the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God at the Creator, at the beginning, the Spirit hovering over the waters and the Word of God coming forth. So God said, let there be light. And there was light, verse four, and God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Now Genesis one goes on with similar um, order of creation, description days of creation. God speaks these um, acts of creation into play. God calls it good, which means that creation is not arbitrary. Creation is by design and purpose, and that includes you. You were created with um, design and purpose. You are not an accident. You are not here as some sort of um, accident of, of just an evolutionary process. You are here by design and purpose of God. Genesis 1. Let's go back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, I hate to spoil this if you're not quite sure about this yet, but spoiler alert, John is talking about Jesus here. Jesus is the word. So I get John's call back to, to Genesis 1. He's reminding us um, here that how God has always been. God is the creator. 
But, but what is this about the word? Why does he call Jesus the word of God? And on one hand, of course, we're reminded of how the word of God is what created all things. God said, let there be light. God said, let the ground come forth. God said these kinds of things. And so the word of God is the creative action of God. And of course, as we go through the Old Testament, the word of the Lord is often a times for God's um, movement and action and, and um, instruction to the people of Israel and the people of, of God. So the word of the Lord is often what brings creation. It's what brings instruction about how to live. But there's another aspect of calling Jesus the word that we also need to consider. So John is writing this in uh, Greek, not in Hebrew, because he's writing to this wider audience than just Jews. And, and the reason he's writing in, in Greek is because as the early Christians went out into the world and they brought this message to, to everyone, to the, to the Greeks, which is the common language of the day, just like English is as well in so many places around the world. And so they wanted to share this message with the world. So they wrote in this language. And, and as they did this, John and other preachers and writers had to find ways of connecting their message to this world that they were starting to engage in. And so as you share this message with new people, you've got a new ways to connect with them. And if you think about Greek society and Greek life, um, the Greeks were famous for having, you know, advanced ways of thinking about the world. We call that philosophy. So we still talk about some Greek philosophers today, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. These are still names that are lifted up today. And so what John is doing here is absolutely brilliant because he is connecting Genesis 1, this ancient Hebrew thought, as well as Greek philosophy of his own day. In Greek philosophy, stemming largely from Aristotle, there were um, this way of thinking about life that consisted of kind of three main, you might want to say forces that were at work in the world to create life. These words might sound familiar to you. Um, they may not sound familiar to you, but these are the three Greek words that were often used. First, there was this idea of pathos. Pathos is the emotional experience that we all have. So what it is to be human is not just that we're, you know, robots always responding to things, but we have emotions. Um, the word empathy, sympathy, you hear that, that in there is pathos is, is buried in there. It's the emotional experience that we all have. It's one of the forces um, at work in the world. Another one is ethos. So pathos and then ethos. Ethos is about morality. It's about ethics. Um, it's, it's how we make decisions. And so humans are able to weigh good and wrong, good and bad, and able to make right from wrong, those kind of decisions that we have this, this moral capacity within ourselves. But then in Greek thought, there was this, this other word that also got lifted up, logos. So pathos, ethos, and logos. And logos is where we get the word logic. So humans have this um, way of thinking logically about the world, this way of having reasoned thought about life. And so um, generally we translate the word logos as the word word. So in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, is this Greek word here, logos. Now to any native Greek speaker in the first century, they would have heard that and be like, I know exactly what you're talking about here because this was a, a common way of thinking that the logos was this, this rational thought or reason was thought to be the underlying principle about how the world worked, that this universe was held together, and that humans have this unique ability to make sense of the world according to our rational thoughts. So if you remember history from like 10th grade world history class, whenever you took that, you might remember that the Greeks discovered all kinds of higher learning, like geometry. Remember the Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared? That's Greek thought. Um, you think about uh, Greek discovered how the planets moved in the sky. They discovered complex calendars and complex government, and they got smarter as a society. And as they did so, they believed that humans had this, this capacity, this ability to understand the, 
the logos, the, the, the logic of the universe, how it all worked together. Now, what's interesting to me is that this Greek way of thinking, this underlying principle of rational thought um, was lost for centuries in human thought, at least in the West. And this is what we call the Dark Ages until eventually we come upon this time of history called the Enlightenment. And once the Enlightenment people come along and they start to talk again about this underlying principle of rational thought, although this time people didn't talk about this rational thought in terms of logos, they talked about this rational thought in terms of science. So have you ever noticed how some people will talk about science as if it's personal. Like it's not uncommon to read an article or to hear a news report about some new scientific breakthrough and someone will say something like, you know, science led us to this conclusion. And I hear that and I'm like, well, that's a weird way to talk. Science led you somewhere? Like science is a personal force? Science is this personal, like active presence in the world? Or sometimes you might hear people just bluntly say something like how science is a belief system for them. And so they, they will say something like, like, I believe in science as if it's a statement of faith. And so you, you may have observations that come through the scientific method. Certainly that, that may be true for you. But to say, I believe in science as the scientific force or to say that it's this personal force in the world is a really strange way to talk. But John, if he were alive today and writing a gospel to, to share with us the good news, he might say something like this. He might say, you know how you see this underlying principle, how the world works, this scientific method that you have? You know there's someone who's behind that. You know that one who's behind that is actually from the beginning. He's always been. All that is created is actually from him. He is the logic of life. He is the word who is from the beginning. His name is not science. His name is not Logos. His name is Jesus. This is the point that Paul is, or John is trying to get across, is that he is this underlying principle to everything that there is. So one more time, John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word. But the word was more than just the logic of the universe. It's more than that. So John goes on. He says, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so the Logos, that is, that is Jesus was with God and he is God. And this is classic Trinitarian thought that, that God is one. He is God, right? That's what it says. But he was also with God. So God is also three distinct persons. That's classic Trinitarian thought. So our claims about Jesus are nothing less than that Jesus of Nazareth is fully God. And I understand that there are lots and lots of people who push back at that and have a hard time with that confession of faith, but, but there's lots of people who do that. But, but many are, are, are willing to accept that Jesus is a moral teacher, but to accept him as God himself is, is too far for some people. But John makes no bones about this. From the very first verse of his book, he is telling us that Jesus is God in the flesh. The one from the very beginning, he has always been and always will be. This is who he is. He is the force that is behind all things. He is the underlying principle of life. He is the one who spoke and all things came about. He is the word from the beginning. Verse three, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So therefore you were made through and I would say for him. We are made with intention and design and purpose. Verse four, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
Verse five, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now we're gonna stop there and pick this up next week. But I hope you heard all of those echoes from Genesis chapter one and those first few verses from John that Jesus is the word from the beginning. He created us. He is the one who made light on the first day of creation. He is the one who, who made and brought all life into this world. There's all kinds of echoes to G Genesis 1 as we read through John 1. And this is not just about Genesis 1, though. That happened at the very beginning because John's point is not just to say that Jesus is the reason that you are here. He's trying to make a bigger point than that. Because he's not just saying that Jesus is the source of all life that there is. He's not just the logic of the universe. John's point is not just to say that Jesus created all things. No, 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 no. John's saying that while all of that is true, also that because of Jesus, there is a new kind of life that is available to us. A new kind of creation. Throughout the Gospel of John, it's 21 chapters long, um, there will be uh, one of the things that Jesus talks about over and over and over again is about how he brings life. Listen to some examples of this throughout the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. John 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one who comes to the Father except through me. And I can keep going, by the way. This book is 21 chapters long and there's over 40 references to Jesus bringing life. So when Jesus talks about life and he gives us invitation to life, He's not talking about this in a Genesis 1 kind of way. Like, like he's, he's not talking about just like, you know, life as we know it, breathing and heartbeats and brain function and biology. That's not what he's talking about. That kind of life has already been created. So that's not what Jesus is getting at. But what Jesus is getting at is a new kind of life, a new kind of creation. And this is why John starts off his gospel with these echoes of Genesis chapter 1, because he's like, you remember what Jesus did then? Well, what he's going to do now is something altogether new. It's a new kind of creation. This is why this book is pointing to what we eventually get to, an empty tomb found in the middle of a garden, because there's a new creation that is available to us through Christ. Now, we're not done yet. We're gonna go one step deeper. And um, John is a deep book, but we gotta go one step deeper. And this next step, honestly, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around this next thing we're gonna talk about, but um, it's so important. So. John writes this poetic, deep, moving opening about Jesus, how he is the word from the beginning, how he is God, how he is the one who is the created, creation of all, he's creating at all times. He's hinting, John's hinting at this new creation. He writes about how Jesus is the source of life, um, not just life that we know, but also this new creation that's available to us. And this is about as big picture as you can possibly get. I mean, John is painting in broad strokes today. And so therefore we have covered some ground. I mean, we talked about creation and Trinitarian theology. I mean, but geometry came up at one point. The Pythagorean theorem was mentioned. I mean, we talked about the enlightenment. We covered some ground today. And the reason we did so is because this opening to John is just so incredibly deep and it's big picture. And so we covered some ground. But at the exact same time, however deep this opening is, 
we have to understand that as John is describing the word, the logos of God, the underlying principle of life, as Jesus is describing, uh, John is describing Jesus who is God from the beginning, John is not just describing an idea or a doctrine or a theology or a philosophy. John is describing his friend, his friend that he traveled with, his friend that he ate with, his friend that he laughed with, his friend that he prayed with, his friend that he mourned with, his friend who taught him how to live, his friend who he saw crucified, and his friend that he saw walk out of the empty tomb alive. It's his friend. John is describing his friend who is the word that is from the beginning. And so somewhere along the way, and I don't, I don't know where it was, maybe it was at the cross, or maybe it was at the empty tomb, or maybe it was when John saw Jesus walk on water, or maybe it was this other random time that we don't know anything about, but somewhere along the line, John came to the conclusion that this man, Jesus, is not a man like other men, but rather that what he offers is life and a new creation, that this man, Jesus, is the word from the very beginning, that he's not like other men. He's not like other people, and therefore he can do what no one else can do. And John, of course, this is something that he personally encountered. He encountered this new creation that comes about because of his friend, Jesus, who is the word from the beginning. One of the things I love about John is his personal story. So when we first meet John in the Gospels, as a young man, one of the things we very quickly learn about John is that he has a bit of an anger problem. In fact, Jesus gives him a nickname. He calls him the son of thunder because John will just lose it. In fact, um, it was after one of these times where John wanted to unleash on some people he was mad at that Jesus nicknamed him the son of thunder, which I love just that Jesus is having a good time with him and kind of making fun of him a little bit and gives him this nickname, the son of thunder, because he's got this anger problem. And this is just what's, what's going on with, with John. But something happens in John's life that, that over the course of time, as he walks with Jesus, something changes inside of him. In fact, if you were to go and do a quick study of the five books in the Bible that John writes, there's, there's one thing that you'd quickly discover, there's one topic that you would quickly discover that John writes about more than any other writer in the Bible, almost like twice as much as anyone else writes about in the New Testament. And it's not the kind of stuff that you might expect someone with anger problems to write about. He doesn't write about vengeance and getting even and putting people in their place. That's not the thing he writes about more than anyone else. No, the thing that he writes about more than anyone else is love. What happens to somebody who has an anger problem and should be going to anger management and is so tense and he loses it so much that Jesus even makes fun of him and gives him a nickname about this? What happens to somebody that they change so much that the thing that they become most known for is their thoughts on love. Like what, what happened in his relationship with Jesus for his life to change so much like that? Was it because Jesus gave him some, some quick tips on how to cool off or Jesus gave him a book to read about cooling his life and maybe living with more Zen or something like that? Well, of course not. What happened is that John encountered and then put his faith in and his trust in the word who was from the beginning. To use a phrase from Jesus, John was 
born again into this new kind of life, this new creation that Jesus brings. This is what Jesus does as the Word who is from the beginning. This person, Jesus, has come to bring life. And this life is the light of all men. This life is the light that we are looking for. And this is not just life as we know it. It's not just life as we continue to go about it. It's, it's a new kind of life. It's a new kind of creation. One where we are made new and our lives are changed. Because the one who is from the beginning has given himself for us. And this is not just an idea. <laughs> This is not just a theology. This is not a philosophy. This is not a doctrine or a dogma. This is a person that has come for us. And this person has given himself for us that we might have life. As he himself described it, it's life to the full. It's a new kind of life, an eternal kind of life, an everlasting kind of life. It's a new creation that has been given for us that our lives might even change because he who is from the beginning has come for us, that we might have life in him. It's an invitation to know and to follow a person. Let's pray together. And so Father, today as we um, begin this journey of Advent and celebrate your coming for us, our Savior come for us, uh, we, we just I want to pause here for just a second and try to wrap our minds around this great promise that you have offered to us of life. Life that is found in our Creator. Life that is found in Jesus. And just like John, all of us bring baggage into this relationship with you. Dysfunction and sin and problems and struggles. And like John, we expect and we need you to change our lives to soften our hearts, to change our way of thinking, to help us see the world in a new way, to see ourselves in a new kind of way, to have hope where we have had despair, to have encouragement where we have been discouraged, to have comfort where we have had depression. But Lord, we just, we need you to move in our lives. And so we wanna open our hearts and our lives and our minds to the reality of the word who is from the beginning, Jesus, who has come for us. I want to pray with anyone here today who's with us who doesn't know the hope of this life that is found in Jesus. As we just turn to you, we open our minds to you, we open our lives to you, open our hearts to you with a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me my sin? Would you lead my life? For others of us who are with us today, there, there, there needs to be a word maybe of encouragement that needs to be offered. As we think about what it is that Jesus can do is so much bigger than we've ever imagined because we are not just serving a small God. This is the God who created all things and he's come for us. And so Lord, would you expand our thinking, expand our hope, expand our understanding of what it is that you can do as we live in relationship with you. Thank you for your great love, your mercy, and the invitation that you've offered to us that we might know the person of Jesus, who is the word who is from the beginning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray today. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Schweitzer podcast. We hope you found this message to be helpful and encouraging. If you enjoyed this experience, please remember to share us with your friends and neighbors. Thanks again for stopping by and remember, you are loved.